The scripture reading for tonight comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iture and Traconotis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, I hope I got those right. <laughs> In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits that befit repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The word of the Lord. Four years ago, I drove shotgun with four nomads and a teenage girl eight hours into the African desert through a washed out trail surrounded on either side by thorn bushes. And by thorns, I mean razor sharp toothpicks. We listened to the only radio station that played out there. It wasn't the Kenyan government sharing propaganda, telling the nomads to lay down their AK 47s and report to the nearest military facility for further instructions, or the ever-popular tinny electric guitar, smiling African singers, and built-in Casio synthesizer beat. It wasn't even some useful survival tips about where to find food, medicine, and water. No, the only thing broadcasting in the middle of the Kenyan desert, hundreds of miles from the nearest English-speaking person, was Rick Warren. His sultry megachurch pastoral voice explaining how to run a purpose-driven church. Someone, somewhere, had decided that the most powerful frequency in Kenya was going to send starving people a lecture on church planting in English. Michael and I listened for a while as Rick Warren explained to the nomadic world that they needed to build on their strengths and don't try to do what you're not good at. Michael smiled. Hey, is it his advice is better than most missionaries usually give. What do they usually say? I knew the answer, but I wanted to hear him tell his favorite missionary story. 
Michael grew up out there, and he doesn't usually like missionaries. Oh, I know them pretty well. They live in the massive houses of white neighborhoods in Kenya. You know, I went to their homes one by one. Well, not all their homes, but only the ones in which I could see they own two cars. And not one nice one and one junk. No, two so nice a cars. Not like this one. He pounded on the dashboard of our dilapidated Nissan SUV. We had just been to the mechanic and our fuel lines were currently being held together by duct tape and prayer. When I was a young man, I was running a humble educational program for mothers to learn to read and write. I was teaching them under a tree on a hilltop in my home village. And we desperately needed a car to bring their children food and medicine. Our classes were so often interrupted by sickness and hunger. So I went door to door asking missionaries for one of their cars. He couldn't keep himself from laughing. Then I started laughing. That's what we do. We laugh through the pain. I would knock on their doors and ask them to give me one of their cars. I would explain to them the nature of my ministry and tell them that they had two cars and I only needed one. His index finger pointed in the air. And if they refused, which they always did, by the way, I would pull out my Bible and read them Luke 3.11. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. And then I would add, and anyone who has two cars should do the same also. He burst out laughing. The missionaries were not impressed. And neither was I. The nomads in the back seat were watching Michael and I laugh and waited until we finished talking. Then Michael translated the story into his native tongue. Peter and Alfonso, the two nomads, laughed for the next 30 minutes, retelling the story to one another. That's what they like about Michael. He's not afraid to give a white man a piece of his mind. Peter and Alfonso were never formally educated, but both deserve honorary doctorates and survival skills. Peter, a smiling skeleton of a man with two big buck teeth, grew up stealing cows until he was hit over the head by a woman who snuck up behind him with a log. He started going to church while he was recovering and decided to join Michael's campaign to send nomadic children to school. Alfonso was a tribal elder with eight wives, ten camels, and 62 children. And Michael's daughter, Chalimo, was bouncing up and down on top of a massive bag of corn flour donated by a local prosperity gospel church. Say what you will about the gospel of prosperity in Africa, but they always have lots of food on hand. The oldest nomad was a stranger who had walked 200 mi miles to Michael's home. His cows had been stolen, and he needed money to restart his herd. He only had one eye, tough skin cross-hatched with scars left by the thorns. He had lived his life in the desert. He wore a fishing cap like a desert Captain Ahab, and he wasn't laughing. He asked me if, he asked me if I had given Michael one of my cars. Michael told them that my car was crappier than the one we were driving. I don't think Captain Ahab believed us. I fell asleep four hours into the drive. I awoke to a clacking on the window. I opened my eyes to a gun barrel pointed at my head, tapping on the glass. The boy holding it was smiling 16-year-old, wearing a torn-up green army jacket and a skirt that looked like a picnic blanket. Michael rolled down the window and greeted the boy with a smile. I looked at Michael. We found them, I said. Actually, they found us, and now we are their prisoners. Or guests, however you want to look at it. Either way, they will bring us to the camp he said, smiling. 
Two more boys in similar dress emerged from the thicket. They shouldered their semi-automatics and stepped onto the truck step and held on as Michael pulled into a path that was barely wide enough for two cows to walk side by side. I could hear the brightly colored beads bouncing around their necks and tried to smile at them. They smiled back and then started chatting with the nomads in their mother tongue. The path led to a field where 15 boys and men stood wearing what I was beginning to suspect was traditional military fatigues, all holding the same Soviet AK-47s. Thousands of emaciated cows with humps just above their necks and ribs like xylophones were standing around behind them. The field was dotted with thorn bushes. The cows were eating short, greenish-brown grass. One of the boys had run ahead and warned them of our arrival. You better stay in here, buddy. These are cattle rustlers, the most fiercest warriors in Africa. But luckily, they are also my tribe, the famous Pokot. He smiled and pointed at the gap where his bottom two front teeth should have been. Then the boy at the window smiled with the same missing teeth. These are Pokot herds boys, however. They have never seen a white person before, and it can be pretty much a scary thing to behold for the first time. Michael knew the feeling because at the age of six, he had mistaken the first white person he met for an ogre. The nomads got out and began to shake hands with each of the men and boys. After the nomads emerged from the car, 15 kids around three feet tall wandered out of the thicket. These kids walked up to the car and started looking in the windows. One of the boys made eye contact with me. Then he pointed at his mouth. Then he cupped his hand. For the first time, I noticed how many flies were everywhere. Big horseflies were drinking the liquid from the corner of his eyes, and another landed on the snot trickle leaking from his nose. He didn't mind. I opened the window and handed him a hard candy. Then the other kids rushed to the window, and I handed out the bag one by one as flies poured into the truck. Two flies landed on the corner of my eyes and one on my lips. I started twitching and blowing to keep the flies at bay. That's what the travel nurse told me to do. She told me that the flies would kill me before the nomads did. The boy at the window was smiling, eyes wide, pointing at his mouth like he was acting for a TV commercial. The flies had moved to different parts of his face, but he didn't seem to notice. He clearly had made peace with the flies. Michael shouted to me, that's good to give out the candies. The children most probably have never tasted one. I looked over to see the men in a heated debate. The older nomads were pointing at me and shouting. Michael was motioning for them to calm down, pointing at himself and his two friends, and then back at me. One of the cattle rustlers shook his gun and started shouting. The old man, Captain Ahab, was sitting on a rock eating a piece of candy with the children. When the shouting started, he walked over to the group. He was their elder by 20 years at least. When he walked up, the shouting stopped, and he spoke in a firm voice. He pointed at Michael, then at himself, then at the children, who were still eating candy, and then at me. Then he pointed at the angry nomads, and then they pointed at their cows, which were grazing behind them. The younger boys went back to their cows while the men came towards the truck. Michael ran up to me. This old man has really won the day. The nomads have recently been at war with the Kenyan government, who has killed hundreds of Pokot and taken their guns. When they saw the car pull up, they suspected we were a government scouting party looking for them. And when they saw a white person in the car, they thought you were British. So they, we were really in trouble. The British had been defeated and forced to give up control of the government in 1965. Apparently, no one had told these nomads. Captain Ahab said you had paid for all his meals since he had begun to travel with us. They didn't need to worry that you were here to help. Which was good, because they were probably going to kill you.
I looked over at Captain Ahab, the one-eyed man who had saved my life. He must have known Michael was explaining the situation because he was looking at me with his good eye and waved, smiling with his few remaining teeth. He seemed satisfied that he had held a white man's life in his hands. He had been around long enough to know how rare that is in Kenya. We unloaded the food from the truck and the boys made a fire for dinner. The sun was going down and Peter and I set up at the tent. Peter could, I, Peter could speak first grade English. You have good sleep here, he smiled. I go to fire for protect you. He shot an imaginary AK-47. Turkana not attack tonight. He put his arm on my shoulder and then ran back into the dark. The Turkana tribe is the nomadic sister tribe of the Pokot. And like many sisters, they had become arch rivals going back to the beginning of time. Michael had told me that the Pokot believed their god Totoro created the first Pokot couple and gave them the first two cows ever created. The problem is that the Turkana believe their god, Akuja, created the first Turkana couple and gave them the first cows. So a holy war is developed on both sides, both claiming that all the cows in the world are rightfully theirs. Michael once visited my uncle's farm in Iowa and told me, I hope the Pokot never come here. They will surely carry off your uncle's cows. It's not personal, it's religious. The guns and flies and cows were making my head spin. I zipped up the tent and laid on my sleeping bag. My eyes closed and I drifted off to sleep. My whole life I had fallen asleep in the middle of great challenges. In grade school I used to fall asleep before championship soccer games. I woke up with Chalimo outside the tent. It was dark. Nathan, wake up. My father wants you. Chalimo was a sweet eighth grader studying in town, but she didn't grow up out here. These were her cousins. I spent summers with my grandma in a log cabin by the water. She spent summers with her grandma in a thatch hut looking for water. Michael was sitting in a circle with 200 men and boys. One man was standing in the middle shouting and jumping up and down. The men to my right and left were nodding along. What is he saying? I whispered to Michael. It's the traditional CNN. Michael's tribe didn't have radio or TV, so they had to get updates on the world from sharing stories of their travels. Michael calls this CNNing. He must have found something important. I said, the man had tied his blanket over his shoulder like an Old Testament prophet and was pointing at the nearest hill. Yep, good eyes, buddy. In fact, that's exactly what he has found. Something important. A scouting party has located a Turkana raiding party on top of that hill. He pointed at a hill less than two miles away. So he is telling the young men that this is no time to being a coward. He is reminding them of the morning they got their teeth pulled out. He pulled down his lip to show me again the gap in his bottom teeth. How they were only ten years old and none of them cried. And how they have fought the Turkana and the Karamoja and the government. And still they have survived. The men were holding up their guns and shaking them in the air, the way terrorists do in the movies. And that, and that tonight, we have a white man in their camp, and they will protect him. You know they say the tears of a white man bring a curse on this tribe. I didn't know that, but I imagine that the British had something to do with this belief. Are you to be wanting a gun, Michael asked me in a whisper. No, guns freak me out. Don't worry, buddy. If we are attacked, you will be the last one to die. That much is for sure. No Pokot man will let you die unless he himself is dead. All the men and boys stood up and started jumping, shouting, and blowing whistles. 
For the first time, I noticed my teeth were clenched and my jaw was locked. My neck muscles were tied up in knots. What are they doing? The Turkana are going to hear them. Michael smiled. Very good, exactly. In fact, they are sending a ceasefire to the Turkana. They are telling him that there's a white man in their camp and not to attack until he leaves. Why are they telling him I'm here? They almost killed me for being a British spy, and now they're telling the Turkana I'm here. What the hell is to keep them from trying to kill me too? No, no, it doesn't work like that. I had no idea what that meant. But before I could ask Michael, he and Peter were called up to speak to the camp. Alfonso and Chalimo moved to the sit beside me. I got the feeling Michael had told them I couldn't be left alone. Michael is a good man. He will save the tribe, Alfonso said between bites of a rib of some small animal. Send kids to school. Chalimo, will you please translate for me? She hates translating because she's a perfectionist, and her English is imperfect. She's a smart and pretty girl who usually gets top national honors. Mike is t- Michael is telling the men to send their children to school, that he's been able to get money for food and medicine because he can read and write. Now Peter's telling the men that the school is important and reminded them that he is a famous warrior, that he used to kill the Turkana, that he is not a coward. That is what they think of school. It is for cowards who don't want to fight the Turkana. He is saying that school teaches you to raid and write, and that will end the endless war. Here I was, under the stars, the only white man to ever see these people, sitting at a tribal meeting on the future of their tribe. This must have been how Christopher Columbus felt. I woke up the next morning with a stiff neck and not dead, which was the best case scenario. Chalimo was at the tent again. Psst, Nathan, Nathan. The tribal elders want to speak with you. Come quickly, because we must be going. I followed Chalimo through the camp. I felt flies swarming and drinking the sweat off my neck. Then I felt a tap on my shoulder, a bare-chested teenage boy holding a steel bowl of pink soup up to my face. Chalimo gently put her hand on the bowl and moved it away from my face. He looked at her, confused. She was the same age as that boy. They were probably distant cousins, but she was wearing a clean dress. She could read and write and had a Facebook account. And for a moment I saw clearly the absurdity of our lives. Where you were born, what choices your parents made, God's blessing to the third and fourth generation. Why was she going to school getting three square meals a day and chatting on Facebook while he was herding cattle, shooting at Turkana, and drinking whatever the hell was in this pink soup? And why was I here? When I met Michael in in the college lunchroom, I just thought it would be fun to have a black friend from Africa. And now I was surrounded by AK-47s in the desert. But like most of my existential crises, I was interrupted by someone asking a practical question. He wants to know if you want to watch him make blood soup. You can't drink it, but it's fun to watch. She took me by the hand and led me to a cow pen, fenced by thorn bushes, which are chopped down and tangled thick. Three boys hunched over a struggling cow waved at me from inside the pen. One of the boys was holding a bow and arrow. The second was holding the head, and the third was stretching the skin from the cow's neck. Then an arrow was shot through the neck, and the cow started bucking and running around. The boys struggled to steady the cow like clowns in the rodeo. Then they filled a half-gallon jug with the blood that was pouring out of the cow's neck. Blood soup. Why is it pink, I asked. They mix it with milk. Don't drink it or you'll get sick. My father Michael drank it last night to prove he was still a Pokot warrior, but he's been throwing up this morning. 
They have been laughing about it. She laughed. Then I laughed. We turned to walk back to the truck. I didn't know what to say to the boys with the pink soup, so I smiled and waved. They smiled and waved back. Smiling goes a long ways when you can't speak a lick of Pokot. <laughs>